So tonight, I talk a lot on these Wednesdays about how to make peace with ourselves and how we often turn on ourselves. And if we almost stop and take stock in any given moment, it's pretty easy to find that on some level we're judging, evaluating, and putting ourselves down in some way. And tonight I wanted to explore a little on how that dividedness occurs with other people and how it proliferates, how our conditioned, our reactivity proliferates interpersonally so that we can land up living where we have people we love and people we don't love, but that there's in a lot of ways separation. There's not a real sense of intimacy in our lives. So that, we're, that the trance that we're in is very much me and the world. That, so that's kind of the theme tonight. And um, I don't know how many of you were on the Beltway. It was uh, pretty amazing tonight. I have, to, I have to go on it each time. But I was reminded of this uh, little vignette of a guy driving home from work on the Beltway. It's been a tough day. And his wife calls him on his cell phone. And she's distraught because she's heard that somebody on the Beltway is driving the wrong way. And his response is, heck, Emma. There's hundreds of them doing that tonight. You know? So it's us, them. It's very, a lot of delusion to it. So unless you're here and you're a person that has a tremendous amount of inner freedom, there's probably at least somebody in your life that invokes some sense of either discomfort or irritation our dislike or aversion or resentment. I mean, most of us have what in Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda's books called The Worthy Opponent. I don't know how many of you read that, those books, but it's really somebody or many people for some of us that, that really trips off things. And I remember one cartoon has a woman deep in the jungles of Africa and she's got this, all these dolls, tons and tons of dolls in her hut and every one of them's got pins in them and her husband's saying, can't you get along with anyone, you know? And it's, so for some of us, we find it's like, it's not just one worthy opponent, it's like on some level everybody's tripping us off. But for others, it could be just, just one person or a few. And we, if they're close people, we begin to really get a lens on what the pattern of reactivity is, how we do this and they do that, and, then we, and we see it. So it may be that um, I'll accuse someone, well, these are my real feelings, and you're not letting me express my real feelings. And then the person would say back to me, well, you're just not being mindful in how you're expressing them. So, you know, it can go back and forth. Or the New Yorker cartoon that I like so much has a man and a woman facing off defiantly, and he's responding to her saying, yeah, well, the Dalai Lama never had to deal with your whining. So, <laughs> so we have our stances. But it can be very, you know, it, we, we can joke around about it, but when we're inside it, when we feel wronged, when we feel misunderstood, when we feel slighted, when we feel shamed or dismissed or not attended to, it's a very deep clutch in our gut, in our heart. And, and it brings up, we get very contracted and very reactive, and we know that. It's very painful. One person who, I get emails from around the country now, people that listen to these talks, and he asked me to talk about resentment because he said in his life right now he grew up with a, 
a dad who's an alcoholic, who's a really bad father and also a really bad husband. He was very kind of mean to his wife. And um, now this guy's mother just had a stroke, so he's gone home to take care of her and the father didn't even come to the hospital and, you know, all the old patterns and he's just got this upwell of, of the resentment and, and something in him knows that there's no freedom in living in that place of resentment and yet it's so in our bodies. It's like we can have all the right thoughts in the world about metta. Okay, just send prayers of loving-kindness, right? But it doesn't work. Because when our body's in a state of aversion, in some way that needs to be attended to. You can't just send... you can't just kind of like smooth it over with the prayers. So we see, if we really look in our personal lives, that there, it's always a microcosm, that the little patterns or cycles that we're in with people, where there's on some level a standoff, or maybe even worse, a real deep kind of bitterness or anger or hatred, that that's what's going on in the world. And we can look from a distance and see the cycles of violence and really say, why can't you just come to the peace table? And why can't just somebody stop reacting to somebody so we can have a moment, so we can get some wisdom here, right? I mean, isn't it like we stand over here and we watch it go on and whether it's the Middle East or with, with Northern Ireland or wherever, we're just kind of praying that somebody will just cool, it, cool their jets a bit so there can be some chance to kind of settle and then get to some more compassion and understanding. But it's not easy when we look at our own lives, how thing, one thing trips off another. So I'm motivated to speak of this tonight because in our own IMCW community there's been, in recent months, conflict amongst different members and subgroups and a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of hurt. And, and I felt it very much in my own system. So it's a real process of learning and growing for us to say, well, how do we bring these practices to where we're getting tripped up? It's, it can be very, very immediate. And sometimes when it arises in a spiritual community, there's actually even more bitterness because there's some assumption that hey, these are people that are supposed to have their act together, you know. These are people that are supposed to be, you know, wise and compassionate and peaceable. So when misunderstanding and conflict comes, there's a real sense of betrayal. Like, wait a minute, I thought this was a real refuge for more sanity. But we're all just humans and stuff happens. But the good news is, when there's a deep intention to be free and there's practices to keep paying attention, then the very places of conflict and pain can be, become powerful places for waking up. That's the, that's the possibility. So what I'd like to do is frame this how do we come to peace in the interpersonal realm in terms of the Buddha's noble truths because they're a powerful and elegant sequence of really what frees us. And the first and the second noble truth says that whether we're talking about our inner dividedness or our interpersonal dividedness, it's absolutely inevitable that there's reactivity. I mean, that's part of our system. In other words, we incarnate and have this sense of separateness 
and we have a clutch of anxiety about, oh, something's wrong with me or something's wrong with you. So we're primed, we're uneasy, we're anxious. It's, it's in our systems. And then in our personal lives, it gets aggravated through the culture and our families so that if there's been a lack of loving or attention or whatever, there's more kind of, of a sense of something's wrong. We're primed. Okay? So the first noble truth basically says existentially and in our personal lives, we are uneasy, uncomfortable, tend towards being anxious, tend towards thinking something's wrong. And in the second noble truth it says because of that, when we get aggravated we either push away or we grab onto something. You know, we push away we don't like, we grab onto what we think is a life, a life anchor or life jacket. Now we can see that in the interpersonal realms. So we get triggered and there's these universal ways that we either grab on or push away, called fight or flight, that we do with each other. And you might, you just kind of, if you reflect and sense in your own life, are you a person that that goes into fight mode, that when you feel tripped off, anxious, upset, it goes right into blaming? are right into resentment, our judgment, are you lash out? If you're thinking, yeah, I do that, just know that that animal body that you're living in is wired that way, it's not your fault, you know? (laughs) Or it may be that you are primarily a flight type, that when you get upset you withdraw, or you pretend to be a certain way. Harriet Lerner writes that deception and con games are a way of life in all species and throughout nature. Organisms that do not improve their ability to deceive and to detect deception are less apt to survive. So we are rigged also to to pretend, to present what we think will be acceptable, um, to lie, to deceive. Um, We also are rigged to lie and deceive ourselves, to ignore things. One of the stories, one of my favorite from the old days example is a guy that confesses to his friend that he really blew it at work and he was talking to his secretary and he's kind of attracted to his secretary and she asked him how the weather was and he said, oh, it's kind of nipply out. And he went, oh my God. And he's really, really embarrassed, really embarrassed. And his friend says, no, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's a Freudian slip and it happens a lot. And then he goes on to say, why, just the other morning I was having breakfast with my wife and I meant to ask, you know, please pass the sugar. And instead I said, you damn bitch, you've ruined my life, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Forgive me. (laughs) It's one of my more edgy examples. I remember sharing it on the fifth day of a silent meditation retreat and people were really deep and it was a real wake up, you know. But the reality is our cover-up of our feelings, okay, and this is real, the way we cover up our feelings causes incredible amounts of trouble. The ways that we don't face and manage to express and process the unlived life ends up wreaking havoc. So that little example is actually true. It comes out sideways in really, really painful ways. The unemployed father who is then, then goes into road rage, 
okay? Or the bullied teen who then shoots classmates. You know, it's like we bury, we push under, and then it explodes. So the teaching is we go into fight or flight, we go into getting possessed by our emotions and either acting out or shoving them under, and the Buddhist teaching is there's another way which has to do with deepening our attention so that we can be present with and live and process what's here but not be a victim of it, controlled by it and identified with it. So the beginning of working with the um, proliferation, the first and second noble truths of how we are uneasy, we're anxious, we're afraid, we act out with each other by withholding or withdrawing or blaming or judging, is to begin to see it and see it in our own lives, the cycles, and as I mentioned, see it in our culture. I mean, just see the cycles and the patterns in our cultures, how countries are caught in the cycles of violence and one country feels wounded and then it lashes out and the other feels wounded and it lashes out back. And then to see it over time, and I here bring up an institutionalized violence in the culture. Um, And racism is the biggest example where there's generational wounds. And so there may be for generation upon generation the profound violence and stress of being dominated and dehumanized and shamed and that's born into this generation and then the reaction to that, well, it could be flight so that individuals stay invisible and they repress or numb or get addicted which leads to more domination and violence or it could be fight which means that there's anger and then that anger creates a response in others of being angry back and more intolerance and more hatred So there's cycles, and some of them come from this particular lifetime, some of them come from generational experiences, some of them come, you know, between countries. But we begin to see that there's karmic patterns. It's not just me, it's a pattern that what I do affects you and then what you do affects me. We're in a loop. The key understanding is that every reaction that we have no matter how horrible it is, whether we react by being rageful and lashing out or react by drugging ourselves, every reaction comes out of suffering. And that if you can begin to trace it back and sense, okay, this is happening out of suffering, there's a little tenderness or warmth in the heart that starts making it possible to work with what's going on my bad behaviors and your bad behaviors, and I put bad in quotes, come from suffering. So the only perspective that fosters healing is that if you and I are in a divided place for us to be able to see the unmet needs, the suffering that's behind it, we have to see our own and each other's. It's the only way to heal. So I'll say that again because we're going to keep coming back to this. All the reactivity that we don't like and that we see keeping on cycling in our own lives and with others comes out of unmet needs for feeling truly loved, truly safe, feeling a sense of worth. When those needs aren't met, we're going to be reactive with ourselves and with each other. If we can begin to see them, both in our internal meditation and in our interpersonal meditation, if we together begin to see, oh, that's the unmet need you're coming from. Oh, that's the unmet need I'm coming from. 
there's an amazing compassion and wisdom that can arise. Rilke's most famous quote, I think, was this. He said, how should we be able to forget those ancient myths about dragons that at the last moment turn into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons of our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us once beautiful and brave. Perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something helpless that wants help from us. Perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something helpless that wants help from us. I think it's really interesting that the word dragon came from the word diamond, D-A-I-M-O-N-S, from the Greek word, which had to do with life energy, kind of, it, it had to do with a guiding spirit or spirit allies, and that daemons actually were to bring us kind of divine creatures to connect us with love or meaning or happiness. In other words, to actually bring us to the refuge of our greatest needs, meeting our greatest needs. And then over time and through, from what I gather, many patriarchal societies, daemons turn to demons, meaning that they're what happens when our needs aren't met, the, rea- the, the set of reactions we have. We, people, somebody's filled with demons, it means they're filled with the anger or the rage or the, the, the lust that causes violence or whatever. It always comes back to these unmet needs. And the interesting alchemy of when you begin to meet the needs, in other words, if we are in a divided state, And we begin to say, oh, here's the unmet need in me and here's the unmet need in you and the compassion happens and the need starts being taken care of. The energy of the diamond is released. That guiding spirit, divine energy is released. So all the stuff it takes to react when we don't have our needs met is freed up. That energy becomes very pure. There's a transformation there. So... What we're going to be doing tonight is a meditation that I'll invite you to choose somewhere where you might feel distance or conflict. And I'll, and I'll have you go through a process of like rain, investigating where the unmet needs are and seeing if we can hold the whole thing with compassion. And it's clearly not a one-shot. It's something that, that takes practice and deepening, but just to get a taste of it. But to first, you know, to, as part of setting the context to this, I can already see some people getting ready to, adjusting their posture to meditate. We're not quite there yet. But um, I think a metaphor that's really important, or an understanding, is that the biggest suffering when we're in reactivity is that we've left home. We've lost touch with who we are. That is the suffering. When... I'm feeling injured by you and resentful. I leave home in that resentment. I become that small, injured sense of self. When you feel hurt or wounded or angry or jealous, you congeal around that. So we lose a sense of the vastness and goodness of our being. And and many of you will remember, I've told the story a number of times here of the uh, statue of the Buddha that had its covering in plaster and clay. This is in the ancient capital, Sukhothai, in uh, Thailand. And it had had this plaster clay coating, and people loved the statue because it had just survived for centuries and centuries. But 
about 10 years ago these cracks came in it and some enterprising monks put a pen flashlight looked through the cracks and what shone out was the light of gold and then they looked in another crack and again gold and as it turned out that under that plaster clay was the largest pure gold statue of the Buddha in Southeast Asia and what the monks believed and this is what's so interesting to me is that they purposely covered the statue with plaster and clay to protect it for, through the centuries of invading armies and wars and weather systems and changes of government and that in the same way we cover over our innate purity with these different defenses and ways of blaming and attacking to kind of protect ourselves and the suffering is that in our fighting and our flighting in these reactivities we lose track of who we are we forget the gold that's there we don't like ourselves when we're in reaction pause and take a look when you're in some way annoyed with somebody are feeling afraid of somebody are feeling guilty or ashamed in relationship you don't, we don't like ourselves even when we're feeling totally righteous in our anger deep down we don't like ourselves because in some way we're identified with an angry self and we're smaller and less than the wholeness of what we are we've left that holiness, that truth so the path of freedom is to begin to slow down so we can see the pattern of reactivity that we're in whatever it is and it might be with somebody we know and it might be with a political figure you know, it, it's not, this is not only a reactivity with close-in people wherever we're reactive we're in a trance of some sense so the pat- but mostly I want to focus on people we know tonight so you can actually do this meditation in a more direct way so the path of freedom is to begin to um, recognize the reactivity and stay present in a way that we can kind of wake up out of that covering that we have there's a, a Scandinavian story that some of you might remember of a young princess who was arranged in a marriage with a dragon I'm going to keep the dragon theme going a little longer here and um, her parents were in debt and the dragon offered all sorts of riches so they said, all right, you can marry our daughter which wasn't the nicest thing for parents to do and she was really, really upset she did not want to marry the dragon so um, she went to a village wise woman and the village wise woman whispered in her ear the secret and how she could make it work out okay and so it's the night of the betrothal you know, they, get, they go married and then they get into their, their, the room where they're supposed to consummate and, and she's going, oi, you know, how am I going to do it with a dragon? And, but she's got layers and layers of this wedding dress she's wearing and so what she said to the dragon is well, if I'm to undress, you too will have to take off something so she takes off one of her layers she's got about 20 wedding dresses on and the bag and kind of takes dragon takes off one of his you know he's got some ribbons and so on and she ta- and but she's got another dress and so she takes that off and he goes hmm well he takes off a few scales 
But lo and behold, there's another dress there. And this keeps happening. Every time there's another dress underneath, she takes it off and he has to take off something. So he ends up ripping off his scale still. He's kind of bloody and raw. And, and every time he looks at her and she's got another wedding dress on. So finally, he rips off the last of his dragonness as she's taking off her final dress. And as all good stories end, who is under there but... Prince. Yes, the prince. <laughs> It's just one of those stories. But it's the Golden Buddha story, basically, that when we, can, when we can take off all the protective covering, all our, if we can let go of our defenses and let go of the reactivity, who's here is an empty awake heart. When we can let it go. And what lets us let it go and this is really, is a quality of presence that's willing to, instead of acting out, is willing to stay and pay attention. So it all starts with being able to pause and pay attention. So this is the possibility, and it, in our inner meditation, and that's mostly the way we do it here, when we're feeling ourselves reactive and caught in our our defensiveness, our anger, our obsessive thinking, the instructions are to pause, to pause and then just start to breathe and be with what's right here, to bring it kindness, to bring it presence. And in that presence, we find that the reactivity starts to dissolve because we come home to a larger space of awareness. In other words, the part of us that's reacting has a need. Okay? Whenever we're reacting, there's a need. And the need is always in some way for loving presence. Does that make sense? That when we're reacting, there's a need, and the need's always for loving presence. So when we meditate, what we're doing is we're feeling the reaction, but instead of going with it and believing our thoughts or acting out, we're pausing and we're bringing presence to the place that's kind of underneath the reaction. I sometimes call it spiritual reparenting because what a child most needs is to be seen and to be loved. And when we're in our reactivity, in our trance, in our selfing, deep down we need to be seen and we need to be loved and we can offer that seeing loving presence inwardly. We can also offer it in an interpersonal meditation. And of course we'll do more of this during the day long but I want to give you a taste of it because when we do it inwardly, we're bringing, we're recognizing and allowing what's here. It's that RAIN acronym. And we're bringing an intimate attention to what's here. And we can bring RAIN when we talk with each other too, exact same way. Adrienne Rich writes this, she says, an honorable human relationship that is one in which two people have the right to use the word love is a process of deepening the truths they can tell each other. It is important to do this because it breaks down human self-delusion and isolation. So in the same way that meditation is coming to deeper truth with ourself, recognizing and allowing what's right inside us, investigating it, being intimate with it, I think of the hand on the heart as kind of the physicalized gesture of that. Deep attention, right here. We can bring that same recognizing and allowing and investigating and intimate attention into our conversations with each other. 
one of our, our guest teachers this year, Mashim Akita Nash, who she taught just a few months ago, has a, um, an essay she wrote called Stories We Have to Hear. And it's really about the path to healing racism. And I think it speaks powerfully to healing any dividedness between any people. And the basic theme is that in order to heal a division, if we are in some way separate, we each need to be able to express what's true for us. And those unmet needs need to be seen so there can be compassion. She tells her own story and she begins by talking about her father who is a second generation Japanese-American who as he got older became increasingly uh, paranoid and abusive. And of course behind that he had, he had experienced being abused and having his basic needs for being uh, held as a, as a valuable human being and respected and safe were violated over and over. So here's what she writes. She says, we were sitting, and this was uh, towards the end of his life, we were sitting quietly on his living room couch when dad, without preamble, said, when I was sworn into the army, we all sat in a big room together and everyone was sworn in as a group. Everyone except me because I was the only Japanese American. They made me wait until the end after everyone else had left and then they took me into a little office at the back of the room and swore me in separately. He paused and then added in a mild tone of voice, you know, that always kind of pissed me off. (laughs) My father had been sitting on that story for 50 years or so, slowly letting it and other racist injustices he had suffered eat him alive. No wonder his entire body had been taught with rage as long as I could remember. The amazing thing was, After entrusting me with his story, after I got to listen and be with that story, Dad looked like a different person altogether, totally relaxed and content. The next day he went to sleep before dinner and died quietly before midnight. There's a power to telling our story and there's a power to having it received with understanding because inside our story is the, the pain of the unmet needs and it needs to be held. And this is is true that we need to hold it for our our inner life and also hold it with others. Now, Mashim has an interracial marriage herself and she describes how difficult it was and describes some of the challenges and how she needed to, in the same way as her father did, express herself. And I want to share that with you too. She says, my husband Chris who is a white Californian, drove me and our son Joshua down to visit his family in Salinas, California, area south of where we live in Oakland. Even though I was raised in rural Ohio, I began battling an enormous wave of anxiety and depression the further south we drove into California farm and ranch lands. I was frightened by the landscape. Finally, I said to Chris, who was looking forward to seeing his mother and sisters and their families, I can't help it. When I look out the window, All I can feel is that there used to be Japanese-American farmers in this part of California, people exactly like Josh and like me, who were taken from their homes and their farms, stripped of their rights and sent to concentration camps. Unless this is something that is acknowledged in words by you and your family, since you think of this area as your home, it's very difficult for me to feel safe. So I, I share this with you because 
these are just two examples. There's countless examples of how for us to bridge the gap we need to be able to express. And yet there needs to be, just as inwardly, we need to feel our inner life, our fears and our hurts and our griefs and really have them express. There needs to be a wise way to have it happen between people so that it doesn't end up tripping off more rounds of reactivity. And one of the best um, guidelines for mindful communications that I've run into is called Nonviolent Communications by Mar- that was developed by Marshall Rosenberg. And I'm curious how many here in this room have heard of Marshall Rosenberg and NVC. Can you raise your hands? Wonderful. That makes me happy. I find that in a way... I've been using, I've been saying the word RAIN and some of you might not be familiar. How many are not familiar with the acronym RAIN? Can you just raise your hand so I can see? Okay. RAIN is, is kind of the set steps of mindfulness. Recognize what's happening and allow, R-A. I is both investigate and get intimate with it. The N is what happens when you're mindful, which is returning to a natural awareness where things aren't, are not personal, you're not identified natural awareness. And I find that that same process is what happens in nonviolent communications when it's done well. And in these teachings it begins with what's called observation, that if you and I have a conflict, the first step is to observe, is just to observe what's happened without interpreting, without commenting, without judging. So it would be just like recognize and allow, it just say, okay, well you said this and I went here, and your voice was loud, or this, or I, or I said such and such, or you know, it's just naming what happened as if you're recording it with a video camera. So, an example would be instead of saying you weren't considerate enough to call home when you were late, you just say you didn't call home. Okay? So, you're just recognizing and acknowledging, recognizing and allowing this is what happened. The next step of this communication, if I'm feeling hurt by you and I'm needing to express myself is to say what I felt. So you didn't come home when you said you would and I felt, I felt hurt, okay? So you'd say hurt. And it wouldn't be like instead of saying I felt manipulated or I felt like you didn't care, you say what you feel. It's, if you say I feel like da-da-da-da, it's going to be an interpretation or a story. Or if you f- say, I feel that such and such, it's going to be an interpretation. If you say, I feel, and the next word's what you feel, then you're taking responsibility, you're inside yourself. So that's the next step. And then the next step after that is you say, what need is underneath that? Because all feelings come from unmet needs. So if I feel hurt, it's because I have a need to feel loved, to feel valued, to feel important. So I would be saying, when you didn't come home, when you said you would, I felt hurt because I have a need to feel via- valued or special or important. So that's, that's just a model of the communications. It takes some skill to name the needs. So there is some inner investigation going on and it might not be there right away, but that's the basic process. That you move from blaming and conflict to naming an unmet need. The final piece of nonviolent communication is a request. 
It may be that I would request that next time you know you're not going to get home at, on time you call. You don't say what you don't want, which is, I never want you to do that again. You always say it in a, in a positive way. So I'm speeding through this, but if you're interested on our website, we will have uh, Marshall Rosenberg's book. And so if you'd like to learn more about how to have this kind of communication, um, and there's trainings around here also in it. But the basic idea is you're speaking from the heart and speaking what's true for you in terms of your feelings and your needs. And when you're listening, you're actually listening to understand, to understand what is this person feeling, what does this person need. Remember Relka again. Everything terrible is in its deepest being something helpless that wants help from us. So when someone's behaving in a way that seems horrible to you, what if you could imagine, okay, the dragon and there's these scales and stuff and that's because there's some unmet needs underneath. George Washington Carver says, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday you will have been all of these. So the work of the heart, this work of bridging the divide, is really a process of us being able to get in touch with and share the unmet needs so that we can hold the process in compassion. And this is the blessing of bringing the Dharma to conflict. It's inevitable that conflict happens. It's a false idea about the world that it shouldn't be there. It's like saying we shouldn't ever feel stress or unease or anxiety or fear or grief. Conflict happens. And the gift of the Dharma is that wherever it is in your life, rather than continuing to blame yourself or someone else, it can become the very place of a profound kind of freedom, of a waking up. The first step, though, is to step out of the reactivity and to pause. What I've seen in the conflicts in our spiritual community here is that what has caused deepened suffering is that we forgot to pause. And it's only by pausing that we can get in touch with the real feeling and the real unmet need. Other than that, we're on a kind of a habitual reactivity that are based on our old ideas and our projections. So we're in a trance. No matter where it is in your life that there's dividedness, if you can pause, if you can pause enough to just to deepen your attention, then you can access the qualities of presence that can heal. I remember feeling... Um, this at 9-11, this sense of, oh my gosh, this has happened and now we're going to do this and then this is going to happen. And, and, and I, got, I had this sense in my body of huge uh, agitation and underneath that a grieving at what I, how I could see the, the proliferation that was going to come from it. And sometime afterwards I came upon this poem uh, that was written the day after 9-11. Um, and it was written by a, a local boy, his name's Maddie, who has since then died, and probably many of you have heard of him because he became pretty well known, um, died of muscular dystrophy, but he was a poet. So here's the words of 
uh, a, this 13-year-old boy the day after 9-11. We need to stop. Just stop. Stop for a moment before anybody says or does anything that may hurt anyone else. We need to be silent. Just silent. Silent for a moment before the future slips away into ashes and dust. Stop. Be silent. And notice, in so many ways we are the same. And now let us pray, differently yet together, before there is no earth, no life, no chance for peace. If we can leave here with a little more commitment where there is dividedness to pausing, to sensing unmet needs, to holding with compassion, we're doing more to serve peace on earth than any outward act. That doesn't mean we don't do outward acts. It means that those acts come out of that consciousness, out of that compassion. So in that spirit, I'd like to invite you to choose some area you'd like to just do a little bit of a meditative reflection with and then we'll close for the evening. So this reflection is doing kind of the nonviolent communications internally a bit. The, it's developing the same skills but in your own inner experience with mindfulness. So just as you pause to reflect, take a moment to arrive. You might notice that if you scan your body, there's areas that are tight, that have clenched. So just relax a bit, see where you can relax. Maybe breathing more fully than usual, just to collect your attention. Feel your heart. And with the heart's awareness, you might just sense your life right now and sense if there's anywhere that there's a dividedness with another person that you'd like to bring more consciousness to. Anywhere that the others become the enemy or a place of a feeling of resentment or misunderstanding or hurt. Where you sense perhaps one of these cycles of reactivity. A standoff that either you're both ignoring or you're both actively not liking each other for. There's just a kind of understood resentment. And once you have someone in mind, you might, as if you're watching a movie, go to a situation that illustrates what brings up a strong reaction in you. A situation that brings up some intense feeling 
so that you just, as if you're watching a movie, stop at that particular frame, see what's happening. Certain words, certain tones, or maybe a situation where a person didn't show up, or whatever the particulars, go to that frame see the expressions on the face if there are such, if there's a person right there or if it's a sequence of events just walk through them in your mind's eye but stop where the movie most invokes an experience in you so that you pause and feel your breath and feel into your body and sense what feelings it brings up. Are you feeling hurt? Angry? Guilty? Ashamed? Sad? Afraid? What's the feeling? So you just be filling in the blank, I feel what? Not I feel like something, but I feel sad, I feel angry, I feel hurt. So you recognize and acknowledge the situation, that's the RA, you're investigating, sensing the feelings. And if it helps you to put your hand on your heart to just connect in a kind way with what's going on, you can do that as you keep on investigating and sensing, okay, I feel hurt, what's the need that's not being met here? Is it the need to feel understood, to be seen, to be loved? Maybe it's the need to be respected. Maybe it's the need to be safe. be intimate, to have a sense of power, to feel belonging. So as you sense, just sensing into if all that you can get is there is some need in there and it, and it's some, there's some painful part just to let that be held in compassion. So even if your hand's not on your heart, there's a sense of energetically your hand is on your heart. Or maybe now is the time to put your hand on your heart and just offer a sense of compassionate presence to the unmet need. So you're seeing that part of you and understanding and caring for
Now it may be that you go home or at some other time spend more time than this because it can take a while to get in touch with the feelings and the unmet needs. But for now, just sense the intention of heart to look at another and begin to sense what's going on for the other person. So you might sense how another person's reacting when they're most, most inflamed or most impassioned, most angry, most withdrawn, whatever the reaction is that is their part of the equation. Take a moment to witness it in your mind. And you might intuit in and sense what is that person feeling behind that reaction, behind the scales of the dragon. What's, what's the vulnerability there? Everybody is suffering. Everyone has some painful feelings when they react. What's the vulnerability there? What's that person feeling? And what is the unmet need that's there? Does that person need to be seen, respected? Does that person need to feel safe, special? What's the unmet need there? You might sense that your heart is aware and holding both of you and the unmet needs that are there wishing for the healing of both of you. The poet Rumi writes, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing there is a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. We can't skip out into the field and pretend the dividedness isn't here but we can pause as Maddie guides us. We can stop. We can stop and be quiet and deepen our attention and begin to sense the need, the longing that's in our heart that's causing the reaction and sense that in the other and hold each of us in that field of compassion until we realize that we are that field that is really the purity and essence of who we are, that field of compassionate presence. That that's more true than any of the stories we have about an injured self or an angry self, a victimized self, a limited self. So we close tonight in a simple way, just 
letting go of all the ideas of conflict or dividedness and just noticing again what's right here in your experience perhaps feeling your breath listening to the sounds aware of in the foreground this whole realm of sensation, aliveness, sound, movement. And that inner stillness, that silence that's aware, that's tender and awake. feeling the intention of your heart as you leave here tonight the purity and sincerity of your heart may our reflections here this evening our meditations, our practices be of benefit to all beings may there be peace on earth May there be peace on earth. May there be peace everywhere. May all beings be free. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.